This is episode one. Have we started yet? I I started a long time ago. Oh, okay, right. cool. Don't worry, I'll cut everything out. Yeah, he always says that. Yeah, I hope it's not insulting that I didn't have to prepare for this one, and the other one I would have had to prepare. Oh, for. I did. That's that's okay. I I spent enough time doing research for all three of us. So all, all week, all week, all immersed in in press, in press pause jurisprudence. So, uh, so Joe, who who's our guest uh, today? Our guest is UGA law professor Sonia West. Hello, who's awesome? I'm very excited. Your first guest. This is you are our first guest in our first episode. Now we did last week. We did record a test episode. Yes, and we we released it because you know why the hell not? Right, right. What, what what would you rate that on a scale of one to five, that episode? You listened to it, didn't you, Joe? I did listen to it. Yeah. In fact, I listened to two different versions of it. No, I'm sorry you, about that. You edited it down. I did. I think that can, was... Can, do you, is it believable that what that the end product was a distilled result? Is that even... <laughs> <laughs> I think it's believable and distressing. Both. <laughs> uh, what would I rate it? You know, as, as zero episodes go, I think it was like a four. Mm-hmm. Gotta leave some headroom. Yeah. Yeah. As zero episodes go, I wouldn't, I'm not rating it on the scale of just episodes generally. Oh, where we're going to go. Yeah. Cause I think it's lower than that. Yeah. On that scale. And, and well, we're trying to leave room because you know, today we've got yeah. Sonia West. Nowhere to go. I mean, huge. Yeah. This is huge. This is a <laughs> totally. huge get for us. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it's been a big year for Sonia. It has. I would say. Um, we're going to talk today probably about the press clause uh, piece that you have in what's, there's an obscure magazine put out by law students somewhere, somewhere. yeah where do you know what that is i think it's the davra no that might be backwards harvard law review is that it <laughs> it's the harvard law review that's right that's what it is is that um a lot of people read that i don't know you don't know I all don't right know. so anyway so sonny's got a piece in the harvard law review on like what is the press and we're going to talk about that a little bit later but also we had um sonia uh we're not gonna we don't do full resumes here Please just, don't. Just kind of, you know, we are disembodied voices who, you know, have led lives and who knows what pieces of those will emerge. <laughs> but um, but one thing you did was you clerked for the Supreme Court. Is that right? I did. And um, and for one of the justices. The best justice ever. Justice John Paul <laughs> Stevens. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And and so uh, Justice Stevens came uh, and spoke at um, at UGA this year. He did. It and was so And you put so together exciting. a whole symposium with our students on, on the press clause. We put together a whole symposium on the 50th anniversary of New York Times versus Sullivan, the seminal case where the court uh, broadened protections for defamation, but really is seen as the beginning of our modern press jurisprudence as the first sort of idea of embracing this role of what the press does and what's speaking out about public issues and how it needs breathing space in a way that's been picked up ever since. So we invited Justice Stevens to come. He accepted. We were super excited about that. He came and spoke about something completely different. <laughs> because I, I was, was going to ask. I mean, that that New York Times the, versus Sullivan is a fascinating a case. Fascinating I can't. Case. I was just at the edge of my seat wondering, well, what is Justice Stevens going to say about that? And I'm still wondering. Yes. Right. Uh, so he yeah. gave a great talk about great originalism. Talk. And it was about history and the use of history and how history is difficult things for historians and it's even more difficult when judges try to engage in history not saying that they shouldn't uh look at it but that they needed to tread carefully when mm-hmm. they and i thought it was fascinating and um, a lot for us to learn from and it was great to see him and i thought he sounded oh, it sounded great it was, was great. Yeah. it was a great talk it was a great talk very exciting and um and it, that, also one of the real upsides of really long lo- i mean one can debate various proposals about 18 year 
terms, rotating for Supreme Court justices and all that stuff. However, um, definitely one great bonus and upside of a judge who has had a very long and interesting life and is very engaged and is able to share especially when you're talking about history and originalism, is some events from his personal history which were very significant and show great cultural change and thinking about, wow, you know, what is it like when you're in your later years to evaluate things that remind you of things that happened in your earlier years? And it was just, that's one thing I think you get when you have jurists who are older and coming at things from that different perspective. Yeah, and specifically on that point, you know, he made these comments about what it was like seeing a movie in Atlanta as a kid. It was gone with the wind and Correct. and how his memory about that was faulty and shows that, you know, there are limits to what one can remember about things and what one can do. And I thought it was really cool. He also came down to Georgia and had a very harsh uh, message about how much of uh, the Civil War history is was passed down in, in Southern culture. And, um, and that's where his gone with the wind story played in. Yeah. But yeah. And, and, and further to the point about uh, life tenure. Do you think it's the life tenure part that gives someone kind of the the confidence to come to a symposium and say, yeah, I'm not sure what you're going to talk. I have something I want to talk about here, regardless of what you're talking about. You think it's the life tenure part that gave him that? Or is it just, you know, he's just as the Supreme Court. There's something about that life tenure and that role, which is unusual in the American system, right? That, that um, I don't know, maybe, maybe if he were just, maybe for 18 year terms and they were a bit more like politicians, he still would have had the confidence to come down and talk about originalism, despite the fact that the thing is about New York Times versus Sullivan. Um, it was a great call. I'm glad he did it. It was a, absolutely yeah. Know, no, it was a surprise. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't but, think anyone has made it to that place without a healthy set of self confidence and other similar ideas. I think that's the primary and that, explanation and that, for yeah. that. Behavior. And that would be true even if there were 18 year terms. Correct. Like right. That. And I imagine there would be some kind of role for them. I mean, they would be emeritus or something, kind of like what Sandra Day O'Connor is doing now, right? Well, Even if they were 18 years old. I mean, you just send them to the circuits. That's, I think, both Justice Stevens and Justice O'Connor have done that. Have they not since they retired? I don't know if Justice Stevens has sat by designation, but Justice O'Connor definitely has. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very helpful. Circuit yeah. judges have to be recused from certain things some of the time, and it's nice to have that ability to say, here's a very experienced person with all manner of understanding of basically every area of federal law who can simply go and serve where service is needed. I think it's a great idea. But I think to get to the life tenure, I mean, where I think you see that is on the bench and, 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 you know, there's a certain amount and I don't know how, I don't know what happens in 18 years or 30 years, but at some point I think they do, you know, get to a point where they really just all these, hopefully all the rest of this noise disappears and they say what they think. I hope anyway, that's the plan. it, it, it's a shame we can't just play snippets of the speech because right. that was the kind of speech you give when you feel like you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. And, uh, and it doesn't have the kind of arrogance that whatever I talk about, people are going to want to hear. It's like, yeah, this is important to me. It's my experience on the bench tells me this is an important thing. If you agree, maybe you'll get something from this. And, you know, it's not, I don't care exactly, but almost I don't care. You know, it's like, <laughs> Uh, uh, I th- I think this is valuable, and I can talk about what I want. But uh, wait, let me just say this though: maybe unlike Justice Stevens, I told Tanya. We're, uh, oh, don't worry, I'll edit that out. I told Sonia <laughs> that we would uh, talk about the press clause, and we actually are going to talk uh, about the press clause. Yeah, let's okay. do that. Do you want to do that? Yes. Um, what is the press clause? Well, so 
The press clause is found in our First Amendment, and even though it's often ignored as though it's not actually there, or at least it doesn't get a lot of attention, unlike the speech clause, which is its sort of favored sibling sitting right next to it in the... In the, in the this is the freedom of speech? The freedom of speech. I've so, of course, of the First it. Amendment protects our, our us, uh, or says Congress can make no law, abridging our freedom of speech, or of the press. And uh, the press clause, uh, so there, it has the same sort of textual prominence as the speech clause, but the way it's been treated by the court has been extremely different. We have a very robust, extensive speech jurisprudence that is hailed, I think, quite rightly as, you know, one of our uh, foundation fundamentals in the Constitution. Uh, We have a lot of rights and protections because of our speech rights, but when it comes to the press clause, uh, we have basically nothing. There's a little bit of minor argument can say about what exactly the role is, but we really have um, uh, practically no to no press rights that the court has recognized as either giving us uh, any kind of protections or or active rights um, or real meaning to so let me know, let, let me know if I've got this right. So the First Amendment, it's a big one. So we've got freedom of speech. We've got freedom of religion, freedom of the press, petition and assembly. And non-establishmentarianism. Yeah, yeah it's I included the two yeah. religion things together, but you're right. Those are different. And and the claim is that some of those are big. Freedom of religion, always a hot button issue. Right. Uh, this is freedom from uh, uh, the establishment of religion, which has a really interesting historical history, which maybe we'll get to on another show. Uh, uh, free exercise, um, uh, the freedom of speech itself, and and the press clause, which I guess your contention is, has been treated kind of like the right and what is it, the Third Amendment, not to have so- soldiers quartered, quartered in your in house. Your home. Yeah. Exactly. Right. It's gotten well. The interesting part is it's gotten a lot of attention in dicta. Uh, you know, the part of, of Supreme Court opinions that don't have any binding force. Then the court loves to talk about how important it is and why we have this free press and why it's important to protect it. But when it comes to sort of actual substantive rights and protections, then we have basically nil coming from the court because it's been collapsed into the free speech phrase? It's been collapsed into the free speech clause, and there are those who argue that the freedom of speech gives you the right to speak and the, the press clause gives you the right to publish your speech, and that's how they play together. I quibble with that because I think when you go and read our speech jurisprudence, it's very clear we talk about how your right to speak also includes your right to reach an audience and to uh, distribute your speech and to have uh, that all the things that publishing and distribution would come as being part of the speech right, uh, and that, therefore, uh, the press clause means something uh, different than that. I also think, historically, uh, we've looked at the right to uh, either have a press or to use a press differently. But So, so if you're, for if the most you're part, not yeah. gonna colla- If you're not going to let them just mush together, then what, do, what would you want a, a free press right to uh, prevent the government from doing? That's separate from what the free speech right prevents the government. I'm thinking of both of these as constraints on state action. So what work would it do? Right. Well, the first question is trying to figure out when we say Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the press is whether that is a who or a what, uh, what exactly we're talking about here. Uh, is it Does it mean simply to use publishing technology, to use a printing press? Um, again, some people claim that's what it is. I, I think there are good reasons, in my opinion, to not think that the press simply means our protections, our constitutional protections of the press means the right to use publishing technology or mass communication technology, which the modern equivalent today would be to tweet something or to put it on Facebook or to, to print it or to publish it. So the other body well, podcast or do a podcast. Exactly. And again, I would think uh, in my reading of the this court's speech 
jurisprudence that would all be part of uh, speech. So then the other question is to think of it more like we use it, I think, in our not common vocabulary, which is it's a who. Uh, that the, the press are certain types of speakers who are fulfilling the role that we all think of as uh, the press. And the idea is that uh, they have additional protections um, that others wouldn't have and, and, and areas where we might see this. So we have, since we have these robust speech rights, when anybody, press or non-press, anybody talks, you have a lot of protections. You, you, you can't uh, have a prior restraint against you. You can't have the government censor your speech based on its content, based on its viewpoint. Uh, you can't, uh, you can only have sort of, uh, depending on the forum, limited what we call time, place, and manner restrictions. Um, we have a lot of protections when we speak, but for the press, a lot of what they do is go out and gather the news. And they have uh, basically no particular protections that they are engaged in the act of news gathering. So that's the area where I think the press clause could have an important role to fulfill. This could include access to places where they need to go uh, and where right now we would treat them the way anybody, which is if you can't get into a government place or a government meeting, if nobody can, the press can't either. If they go on property, they could be guilty of trespass. Um, so we could have access issues. I think there's a big opening. Protections from subpoenas. We often think about the reporter's privilege. You're subpoenaed to testify. Yeah, let's talk about a couple of yeah. specific cases. You know, every, a lot of people remember the Judith Miller case. Right. Um, uh, and... Uh, Meaning what? Can you? I don't. So can you? I know who she is, but I don't this remember. This is a reporter for the New York Times who didn't want to disclose um, uh, who um, gave her the name of the, of the um, uh, CIA agent, right? Which turned out to be, yeah, Valerie Plame. Valerie Plame. Joseph so Willis she doesn't Wilson's. want to drop the dime on Scooter Libby, so she says, I don't want to tell who told me. Right. right. And, and the, you know, I mean, I think you don't have to be a lawyer to know the standard arguments uh, that right. reporters would uh, muster uh, for this. And that is if you you know, if the government can always get your sources, then you can never report on underground activities or government malfeasance. Uh, um, There are all kinds of things you cannot do unless you can assure the people who uh, might talk to you that that their name won't be uh, revealed. And so she went to jail rather than uh, reveal the name. And it was a complicated scenario. I don't know how much you want to get into the scenario because that was an instance where a lot of people thought that the reason um, that... um, uh, that they talked to her, they were taking advantage of the anonymity uh, in order to get certain messages out there about the Iraq War and, uh, and Valerie Plame in particular. But I don't know how much how much detail we want to get into it. But how would the, I mean, how would the press clause play a positive role in your view, or just a role? I mean, not every thing law does is necessarily positive. So right. So what we call uh, a reporter's privilege is basically this idea that. You know, any any of us who might possibly have any person um, who might possibly have information that could aid the government, particularly often in a criminal prosecution, we could all get a subpoena and we'd have to go uh, to testify either before a grand jury or as part of a trial. And we all have to then say what we know. We have to uh, testify uh, truthfully under oath unless we want to, uh, you know, claim our uh Fifth Amendment rights or something like that. This is a duty we all have. Uh, so can I, can I just jump in to say, I think it's really um, it's really important to recognize, and this is the former evidence professor speaking, <laughs> that, that you know, as, as the saying goes, the, the law is entitled to every man's evidence. The law is entitled to every person's evidence. And that's a really important thing. Thank you, Darcy. That's a really <laughs> important principle that makes, that, that helps make social life really good and effective and productive. That, 
we need to be able to do that. Okay. We need to be able to get a person who has seen an event to come in and report their firsthand knowledge right. of that event. So right. that we can, so that if we need to make a legal determination that turns on what our best reconstruction of that event is, we can get the best evidence available of it. And many times that's firsthand knowledge from witnesses. So ge- generally speaking, I think it's great that we have a mechanism, a legal tool to get every person's evidence. Right. And, in I, a court case. and I agree. That's the basic principle about why we do this. And it gets us closer to the truth, which is one of the goals of law in general, often, yeah. or at least of the trial uh, process. Uh, but we make exceptions when we think there are countervailing um, interests there. And Absolutely. so we do this, as is well known, doctor-patient uh, privileges, where if your doctor knows something that might be relevant, might not might not have to, might have a privilege where they don't have to go and testify, or uh, in certain cases, uh, spousal privilege or clergy privilege or lawyer a client uh, we give these privileges because we think there are countervailing interests that go against this this general interest that we have as joe just said in, and those aren't even in, having, in the constitution and those aren't even in the constitution so we make these kind of balancings all, all the time so the, the point of the reporter's privilege would be again that there are um, um interests on reporters who go out and are trying to gather the news and rely on uh, it's usually confidential sources that we talk about, although that's not the only uh, situation where it might come out. And someone talks to them uh, to help them cover the news and they promise confidentiality. But guess what? Uh, they get a subpoena and they go in and now they are under a legal obligation to say what they know. And it can be just not just a source. It could be what they saw. There's a, a, a case, a famous case where this is in the 1960s and reporter was invited into the headquarters of the Black Panthers and then were was subpoenaed to say, just tell us what you saw. What did you observe? It wasn't a confidential source, but they firsthand authorization and they and, and reporters say we can't do this or we can't do our our job. So this has been the biggest issue where we have at least some debate. Uh, the Supreme Court had said there's no First Amendment right. It's it's a little questionable exactly if they said that. The 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 opinion, the Brandsburg opinion is um it's a little bit uh, up to dispute, but at least in the grand jury criminal uh, justice system, it's pretty clear. And that's what happened with Judith Miller, that uh, this isn't a right. But there's legislation and a lot of talk about legislation on how to do that. A lot of states have uh, reporters privilege, but this would be this kind of this would be one area too. Uh, And that's also the same for uh, uh, um, uh, search warrants. Um, um, There's no constitutional right that the government can't have a search warrant on, say, a newsroom and come in and go through a reporter's notes and their desks and just the way they could on any other potential scene where they might get useful information. You mean the press clause does no additional work? No constitutional protection there. Yeah. We have statutory protection uh, that Congress passed following a Supreme Court case that said there was no First Amendment right, but we treat so how is reporters this, the same. How is this not just of a piece with, you know, I think of a lot of the First One way of looking at the First Amendment is that it's a, it's a general, it's a, it's a general specification using specific words meant to protect some kind of freedom of conscience. That's, you know, you've heard that before, I'm sure. And, um, and the press clause is indicative of a certain value, the value of dissemination of information um, w- with a necessary kind of uh, tag along of, of access to information, but that it's not so different than any other kind of uh, general protection that the First Amendment would offer for, you know, meeting people and talking with people and getting your ideas out there. Um, and then, in fact, even in the religion clauses, we've seen kind of a collapse, uh, you know, from the idea that that there are special rights, individual rights that this creates. Um, and, and here I'm thinking of the you know city of Bernie case and the uh, uh, striking down of the RIFRA and and all of that. Where, right, 
in a, in a nutshell, the, the court says there are no special rights for uh, religious observers. You, the government can't target people because of their religion. But if government passes a generally applicable law, like the law banning pe- uh, peyote, um, uh, then just because you say your religion requires you to use it doesn't mean that you get a, a free pass. And that was a change in the law, and that seems to be the direction the court's going. There's a general First Amendment, which provides very broad speech rights compared to Europe and, and, and other places. It's a very libertarian, uh, we have a very libertarian understanding of our First Amendment, and that's enough. Um, and, and we don't need special rights for, uh, particular religions and particular religious practices or for particular first amendment actors of other sorts. Like, Can I just jump in and, and, and call a little bit of BS on the comparison? Because it just seems to me that the, if you're talking about employment uh, division against Smith, the peyote case, that, that there, the, the court seemed to be concerned, troubled about the possibility of anti-evasion. So one reason to interpret the free exercise clause that way to say it doesn't give you a get out of jail free card uh, for generally applicable standards, like you can't use that prohibited substance, mm-hmm. is that if if saying it's a religious practice will get you a free pass out of that obligation, everyone will just say it's a religion, yeah, especially but, uh, if the jurisprudence is as ours is. We do not second guess people's assertions right. about whether something is or is but that not. Brings us to, that brings us to Sonia's article, right? That brings us to Sonia's article because that is exactly one of the concerns, you know, that um, uh, of course I'm not going to testify against, <clears throat> you know, air quotes here, my, you know, um, drug co-conspirators. Um, I was planning to let people know all about it and report okay. on that. So, well, I, then, you know, I should just, get a free pass. Before Sonia... Um, explains what all the good things let me say one more maybe off the point thing or silly thing which is that so to put it differently if i if i want to think about this new press clause issue one thing i'm going to be on the lookout for is are, are you telling me i do or don't get to make an affirmative determination when someone says i'm a member of the press do i have a mechanism for actually sorting out whether i think that's true or not right because in the religion context again the court has said over and over again we are absolutely not inquiring we will not we cannot we do not and that's inquire. my point they, they say exactly the same so thing with the press clause and i'm trying to build here a mountain well, of objections have, that sonia with her brilliant article <laughs> will knock down if they have but, or haven't said i don't know but i but that's what i'm just saying i'm i want to be on the lookout for that because if, if you're telling me you can't get, get behind someone's assertion, I'm a member of the press, I'm a lot less interested in now in the category. Well, but that's, so that, that's, that's my point. We'll let, we'll let Sonia clear up all the confusion and tell us, you know, why, why, why we're laboring under, under misconceptions. But that um, uh, we have a very libertarian First Amendment that protects speech very broadly, more broadly than a lot of people think it should, you know, see Citizens United and, and other, other cases. And, um, and then secondly... Um, uh, we have a general principle of general application of rights and duties, and that you see that in the religion cases, and you see it in other First Amendment speaker cases, and that is its own sort of value. And third of all, um, how are we going to know who's in the press? Who the hell is the press these days? Uh, it's you know any speaker can inform anybody else, and just because you make your living doing that rather than doing it as a hobby, uh, doesn't mean that you're in any way special. You can take advantage of, again, our very broad libertarian First Amendment uh, to do your work. And we can detect through those normal means um, uh, what you might think of as totalitarianism, you know, the enemy of the press, kind of a totalitarian 
government crackdown on speech is totally detectable uh, through ordinary First Amendment means, so we don't need the press clause at doing extra work in creating a special category. Um, now, these are all kind of functional arguments against the position I think that you're going to mm-hmm. stake out. You, you know, we're not even touching on textualism or history or any of this other stuff, but uh, that's okay for, by me for now. Maybe. Right. But uh, so how, how do you overcome this mountain of serious, <laughs> exactly. serious objections? Right. So this is all some form of, like you said, that that even people who say, yeah, you read the text and it does seem like maybe there's supposed to be something more here. It's completely not possible to do because we would have to figure out which speakers would receive these rights and protections, these First Amendment right protections. And that's um, and that's, you know, we can't we can't we have to make sure we don't you know tread too close to anything that looks like licensing the press because that's bad. We don't do that. And so and like you said, just it doesn't mean that just people who are elitist and work for the New York Times. It should be the, somebody who who's the lonely pamphleteer or the lonely blogger and 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 in their pajamas. The bloggers are always in their pajamas in these stories. But um, so we are not. Are, we, yeah, are, we, we are, are not in our pajamas. Right now. We are fully we're, we're clothed. Yes. clothes. That's true. But I, but I am lonely. <laughs> I am lonely. Except for right now, this is great. So yes, keep this going. Is great. Yes. So anyway, um, but to go to the employment division versus Smith, the religion argument. So Joe is completely right. So the, the concerns there, and this is Scalia, not somebody you consider you know an enemy. Of of, of religion, but he says exactly like Joe says that anybody's going to be able to claim this, and we can't um, we can't have it be that broad, or our criminal laws will just completely break down into into nothingness. And as Joe said, we are not in the business of judging people's religious beliefs, whether it's truly is a religion. I, we're allowed a little bit to look into whether we think it's sincere or not, but that's about the extent so, of so it. So, just to use an example, so if I say I'm from the Church of the Lead Foot, and it requires me to drive 190 miles per hour on the highways. To achieve spiritual harmonic convergence, yes, um, that that doesn't work anymore. Did, and it, right, and and I guess it never worked. But right, I mean, we could look a little bit into whether we thought you sincerely believed that. But other than that, so no, oh, so I they do. come along. Do. Well, we do, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it explains so much. Yes, exactly. And so they come along and say, if it's generally applicable, neutral law, everybody has to follow it. And there's no free free expression to 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 the great uh, dismay of everybody on both sides of the aisle. And as you said, Rifra came along, and the court said who cares you know this is the way it's going to be and um uh so so that's all the problem i don't think those are problems uh with the press clause uh for a couple reasons and one is i don't have any problem at all with the government doing some kind of inquiry into using a press clause claim as pretext i think we can be much more bold of that because we have the speech clause protection. So, so one, we don't have the concerns of just religion in general and what that brings up about how we're not going to judge people's religion. Because basically that's what we're looking for, pretext. We're looking to see if you're using this an excuse. And I think we can be freer when it comes to the press. And we also can be freer about line drawing because, as I started to say, we all have speech clause protections. Those will still be protected. So if we, we misjudge our line a bit, we're not removing anybody from our public debate entirely. There's still robust speech uh, protections. We're simply, for at least this moment in time, saying you're not a press speaker. And I think that alleviates um, a lot of uh, the dangers. I also think functionally, it works very different here, differently here. When you talk, when you look at what the court has said, like I said, when they talk about the press and dicta, you know, it's this idea that the press works for the public and they and they are out there bringing news to the public, newsworthy information. They're checking the government. They're doing these things as a proxy uh, uh, for uh, 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 the people. Uh, and that's a different function than what our free, re- free religion 
our, our religious freedoms bring us, and we're not giving that any teeth if we don't give some protection to it. So we're really truly failing on fulfilling this function in a way um, if we don't uh, do this. Um, but this all leads to to this idea that I'm very comfortable uh, with a more narrow definition of who is the press than other people are. Other people think if you ever do anything sort of remotely press-like, then we're going to have to call you the press, and that makes this category way too big and way too unworkable i don't have any problem at all looking for a pattern of um you know of that you this is something you've done regularly this is something you've 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 connected with a a broad audience you've done things that are are press like uh in order to find these people who are truly doing these these can i ask you about that yeah Mm -hmm. i mean because i in your article um you 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 adopt kind of it's it's a real kind of o'connor style all things considered understanding right which basically is like a a delegation of authority to courts to draw lines in individual cases and develop kind of a notion over time and maybe one of the virtues of that is that you know because it's an all things considered test uh, it's flexible meaning that if conditions change the test can change in meaning over time because it's not a it's not a rule um uh, is there a principle that you would use these days i'm not going to ask you to nail it down for all time but are, are the factors that you consider, you, you mentioned some of them here, uh, um, and I don't remember what, what, what all of them were, but it, you know, it is like, you know, being in the profession, um, uh, wh- how regularly you do it, uh, what kind of audience you reach. Uh, there were some others, but is there a principle that animates those? Um, well, mostly what I found when I was going through this, like I said, I feel like there are, when you really look at what the court has told us about the press, that there are two basic functions that the court do, that the press does. One is that they inform the public about, and this is another loaded term, but about newsworthy matters, about news matters in the public concern, <laughs> which is a phrase the court is comfortable with to, to an extent. And, the, and it serves as a check on the government. I would also say the government and the powerful uh, because the court has expanded that uh, as well. So really what you're looking for are those two things, speakers who are doing those two things. Um, and I think uh, having regularity of publication within a, with an established or, or uh, um, audience uh, gets you a long way to that you're doing those things that if you know if, if no one listens to our podcast uh we're not informing the public of, of or checking the government right these you have to have this and and having the regularity of publication shows you are not just a speaker who did a, a momentary thing that looked press like but rather you are someone a speaker who is who is devoting resources and time and expertise uh to fulfilling those two functions so that's really what you're looking for but the other thing i say in the paper is i think there's a lot of proxies out there uh yeah. and i don't have any problem for, for finding those speakers quicker and easier who are doing those things and i also don't have any problem with courts looking to those so the fact that you work for the new york times for example that an, another institution a press institution has declared you to be a reporter who's doing these things that's a very good proxy as a speaker who is fulfilling those two functions and so i don't have any problem courts rely on that that the fact that you got a degree in journalism from an institution is probably a pretty good proxy that you're more likely a press speaker um, it's not the exclusive things it's not the only things but i think it's perfectly fine for courts to also look to those kind of things but what we're but the ultimate goal is we're trying to find the speakers who are fulfilling those can i those try functions. to say in, in probably a worse way uh-huh. what i hear mm-hmm. uh, you saying and that is that um like in a democracy it's very valuable in fact essential that people know what's going on, that they know what their government is doing, and they know especially what other powerful actors within the system are doing. Um, and so there is a, uh, a a general principle of 
positive information flow that has to be maintained, meaning that, you know, uh, it's not enough that people are not kind of stopped by the government from saying things, but there is a value in their finding things out and creating new knowledge and new information and transmitting it among the populace, right? Especially so in a democracy where people have to make important decisions. And um, there is an impracticality with giving everyone in uh, the society the tools necessary um, to do that kind of informing. It just gets to be, you know, there are too many exceptions to rules that you have to create, you know, et cetera. Um, on the other hand, if we give no one those special tools and exceptions, we dramatically injure that thing. In other words, so there are kind of competing values. The, the uniformity of the rule of law on the one hand, uh, which is, you know, the more uniformity, the more predictability, you know, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, free flow of information and generation of new information, that's also a value. And um, so what has to happen is some kind of accommodation of competing values. And what you would say is that we can identify situations that are you know, unusually helpful to the information flow situation in a way that's not too harmful of the uniformity of the rule of law idea, right? And we can do that by identifying people who play existing roles. And we're not going to do it perfectly. There may be, you know, um, maybe like this podcast, maybe we get like one or two listeners, right? And we're trying to inform people, right? And we're, and, and maybe we'd be failing at it if we don't attract a, enough listeners. And a court looking at that would say, well, you know, you may be trying, but in th- this is one of those cases where the uniformity of the rule of law is more important than any additional value you would play in the inter- in the interchange and production of information, and therefore we're not going to find special rights here. Whereas in other cases they can. Now, anytime so anytime you give a court that power to kind of pick and choose um, the institutions and parties to whom to give special rights, it's a very powerful power, right? It is, um, and maybe that's part of what makes some judges uncomfortable with it. You know, it's it's the general. Um, flaw, if you like, in, in multi-factor balancing tests. It gives a lot of power to deciding judges. And in this case, it's, you know, the same kind of power the court was worried about in Smith. It's kind of just an escape clause from uh, from generally applicable law. It's a huge power. Uh, what, what, did, first of all, did I say that right? Is that kind of your view? You said that things? really well. And I think that's exactly right. And that's, again, another reason why I think it does differ from religion. A great example is the court in the 70s had a, a, a few cases that involved reporters who wanted access to jails and prisons. Uh, There's one case, for example, where a bunch of inmates were committing suicide in this one jail. And, 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 and there was reason to believe that there were, you know, cruel uh, uh, conditions going on. And the, and the reporters wanted to cover this story. But they couldn't get access to the jail because, uh, and this went to the Supreme Court, and, and but the warden basically said, you know, we can't just, we're running a jail here. We can't just open our doors and let anybody who wants to come check out what's going on in our jail come in. That would be, that would completely interfere with our ability to run a prison. Right. Good point. We understand that. We can't, right. we understand why Sounds jails right to me. don't yeah. have, can't you know, let everyone in. we can't let everybody in, right? Exactly. So we understand that. So, so what the situation we have now is if everybody can't get in, nobody gets in. And, and so my argument would be just like you said very well, but we would all have been benefited 
benefited as a society if the reporters who were trying to go cover this story and gather news and report it back to the public could have gotten in. Um, that and that and it's this everybody or nothing philosophy that is hurting us. And I think that that's why I keep saying we can also have a pretty narrow definition. It, it really can just be some people, and we can't do that in the religion context. And I, I feel like that that makes it very difficult. If we say if you're if it's a if it's a religious belief, you don't have to follow our drug laws. Then anybody who wants to do drugs will just say it's religious belief since we can't or are uncomfortable for good reasons and judging people's religious beliefs suddenly the whole drug laws go out the window and so it doesn't work there but i think it can work um here so so yes i do feel like that's part of it that we can have it's a different function and we can have um a lot of benefit that we're losing out on um by not having these proxies it also sounds like you can you can look like so you know that the reason you're interested in extending this additional uh, protection from state interference is because you want this pre-speech activity to be able to proceed, right? You need, The reporter needs to be able to go into the prison, talk to people, look at the conditions in the prison. So you know um, about these pre-speech activities that are important, it seems like you can then use those activities as the lens through which to look for the the people who deserve that protection in the following way. You say, okay, it's got to be someone who has the skills and training and experience to be able effectively to engage in that very activity. So you've right. got a, you've got a, a tight fit between the activity that we are trying to make sure that we socially protect because we socially benefit from it and the ability to figure out who will and will not be able to engage in that activity. Am I, f- I would be a very bad yeah. person to send into the prison. I don't have experience. I don't have training. I wouldn't do a very good I, job. I think you'd be words. fantastic. <laughs> also be send very Joe scared. to prison. That's how rumors get started. Um, I no. would pay extra for the Joe Miller goes to prison. <laughs> you and so many other people. Um, but, but no, I think this is good where you can... I mean, it's a good thing when... The, the very reason you're engaging in the inquiry is itself a source of really good proxies to know you did it successfully. Like, I identified the people successfully. How am I sure? Because I know this is the activities I needed them to engage in. That's why we extend the protection. Am, so am that I, seems like a really good yeah, thing. No, no, I hear you. So am I full of it when I say that, it, you know, that maybe it's similar to, um, well, think of it this way. No one raises an eyebrow when the state creates universities and then... And then creates criteria to decide which limited group of people will take advantage of government-supplied education of the highest order, maybe, right? So, uh, like, it's non-controversial that not that you know that we can let some people, but not all people, into the University of Georgia. Is that you know? I'm just thinking of this up off the top of my head, so it may be totally crazy. But the idea that government engages in some kind of rationing of special privileges. Is uh, um, is some for some reason non-controversial in some areas, but yeah. controversial. In well, others. I mean, so on the one hand, yes, I'm I'm more comfortable, at least in this instance, of having some government line drawing, even if it is, as you said, and it will have to be imperfect. Um, because, and again, also, I said I feel like having the fallback protections of our speech clause that every no one can take away protects that. Now, to play my own um, um, 
um, devil's advocate, as I said earlier, we have this special concern about licensing of the press. Um, um, this is something we fleed, uh, you know, we didn't want from from um, Britain uh, that we had just sort of you had to get a license and approval from the government before you could uh, publish. Um, that is bad. And that's what separates some of our testimonial privileges. We talk about we license, uh, you know, lawyers and we license doctors and we don't have but we can't license the press for good reasons that so we don't want to do that. So this leads to, to one of the other concerns, which you, you touched on Christian, when you when you when you did your nice um, um, summary here, is that we're, okay? We're going to prote- have these rights and protections, and we're going to figure out who the good people are to send into the prison. But that might lead us to only certain types of speakers that we might have. Sort of, it's you know, I call it the elitism problem. We're going to have the people report for the New York Times. We're going to have people who went to journalism school, um, and 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 there's a general understanding, and I think a correct one, that the press clause protects more than that. It protects these alternative speakers, right. people who might not be able to. Um, you know, and and it does protect, you know, the bloggers. It's always the question about the bloggers, although I don't know how long people are going to care about bloggers anymore. But um, the bloggers and, and uh, um, um, you know, so how do we protect them as well? So so part of my, in addition to being comfortable with using these proxies, um, like you have been recognized by another institution to be a reporter, I, I feel very strongly there needs to be a path for these alternative voices to also do this. But this is where I feel like it's a great time because of, mass communication technology that because of looking to regularity, pub, regularity of publication and an established audience, there is a very doable real path for a lot of alternative voices to get I like this that part of the piece. Like you point to the very complexity of the problem to, to say, well, you know, maybe the, and, and when I say the complexity of the problem to be more specific, I mean, we have a huge diversity of information sources now that uh, maybe didn't exist a uh, hundred years ago, 60 years ago, 30 years ago. And so rather than take that as a sign of defeat and the impossibility of sorting and picking and choosing among investigators and, 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 and speakers, uh, maybe that complexity will sorting through it will help us realize it will help us on the path towards a more functional definition that gets at our real concerns and that the, um, the highly structured small number of, uh, participants, elitist kind of the old way of doing things actually was a barrier to that understanding. Is that, is that kind of your point? I don't, I don't know. It is. It is. So for a long time, we looked to when people, uh, you know, this would be on the legislative level since we didn't have court protections, but when legislators tried to define the press, they would look to things like, are you on TV and do you write in a newspaper and are you on the radio? And, and, um, and cause that, and it was a decent proxy at that time because, most people didn't have access to the radio or the television. Um, and, and, and if you were, there's a good chance you were one of these people who was doing this job as the press. But that's all out the window now. You know, everybody's on the Internet, including a lot of the media, who many of whom are only on the Internet and or on Twitter or all these things. So it's, it's very blurry now to, to, to use that kind of line, which gets us back to really having to look at these, these functional definitions of who are the people who are actually doing these constitutional jobs that we want them to do. But I also think it means that there can be people who can start a podcast in their dining room and they can build an audience and they can do it regularly and they can bring news to people and they didn't go to journalism school and they don't have some fancy degree and no one ever gave them a press credential. But guess what? They're doing the job and a court can look at it and say, you are doing this job. And 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 when you become concerned about what you hear is going on in the local prison and you want to go and cover it for your podcast, it won't be that difficult uh, for uh, uh, um, 
the courts or whoever's the decision maker is to realize this is somebody who is actually doing it and doing the job. And maybe that's a compelling test for, you know, younger people who, uh, like all generations are, are nearly obsessed with the complete and utter destruction of the generations that came before, right? This, uh, um, and, you know, you don't understand. There's this, we have a completely new way of doing things here, um, and uh, your old ways are no longer valid. And, and your test is kind of responsive to that. It's a test for all generations, right? Well, that's another issue, too, exactly, that we don't want. There's a quote from one of the Supreme Court cases that any test we would come up with would be born in anachronism. We don't want that. We do have to find something that um, is that. Well, obviously, this is good. this is obviously going to continue changing, and who even knows how we're going to get our information and our news um, um, in the future. But um, so, yeah, you do need to find a way that steps away from any one moment in time. You know, the law makes distinctions like this. In fact, one that might arguably be in some ways quite similar to this all the time. So there, uh, the difference between an employee and, an, and a, quote, independent contractor uh, is a difference that can be quite consequential for certain legal standards, for various kinds of tax treatment and, and other sorts of things. And Congress has passed many statutes. The one I'm most familiar with uh, with respect to this specific distinction is the Copyright Act. Uh, but the Congress has passed many statutes that simply refer to employees doing things in the regular scope of their employment. None of that is defined. Why not? Well, because there are decades and decades and decades of court precedent coming up with a common sense set of indicators, proxies, what, call them what you will, factors that a court can look to to make a context-sensitive, uh, a uh, fact-specific determination, oh, in this instance, you were actually an employee for purposes of this legal rule, therefore the following things follow. Or no, you were not an employee, you were an independent contractor. So this is something courts are very experienced with. You said delegation to courts earlier. Yeah, We're delegating to them a task they do already frequently in much the same way. And so we ought to feel like they're going to be no better or worse, I would imagine, at doing this task at any of those other tasks. Well, uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, it is, it's a, because of the, the necessary rationing that goes into it. Um, you know, not everybody can be on the president's airplane. Not everybody can be in the courtroom. Um, it is a, you know, um, uh, picking and choosing who can do this is kind of constitutive of, of the structure of, the reporting market, what it means yeah. to produce news. And so that, it's but a it big feels, power. And so it feels momentous in that respect, at least it does to me. But but for the people involved, well, for a few things. For the people involved in a dispute about whether they're an employee or an independent contractor, my guess is if we ask them, they would say, yeah, this matters a lot to me in my life. I'm in the middle of this lawsuit. I'm going to win or lose depending on which one of these answers I'm given. So yeah, to me, it matters a lot. So to the level of the individuals involved, it obviously it can matter just as much. Um, and in terms of the broader, you know, the social structures that follow from those determinations, well, those are markets too. Markets for various kinds of employment, the activities that follow from that employment or not. Um, so, I, you know, yes, I recognize there are differences in degree, but I don't, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm suspicious that there are differences in kind. Well, can I can I make a completely separate point? Yeah, it's, do you mind? Uh, you have a <laughs> microphone just like me. This is a market. This is the the cacophony of ideas. Awesome. Um, I wanted to explore. You know, so I want to you know, kind of 
ask something else and I'm kind of equally unqualified to ask about, um, I guess I'm qualified to ask about anything, right? Yeah, but you're qualified, just not qualified to, to make any assertions. Yeah, answers, yeah. Totally unqualified to do just about everything, but I can't ask questions. Um, <clears throat> it was good enough for Socrates, so it's good enough for me. Um, you know, I'm thinking about the First Amendment more broadly again. I'm, I was just thinking about the, the, the religion clauses and the um, kind of the yin and the yang of, which is probably a bad analogy, of the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, right? I mean, the Establishment Clause is an affirmative, as it's been understood now, and maybe we'll talk another time about you know history, but uh, as it's understood now, it plays the important role of saying that there shall not be a government religious orthodoxy, right? Uh, go- government cannot you know, establish a religious order. Um, and the free, exor- the free exercise clause, uh, you know, empowers courts to protect individuals in their own pursuit of their own orthodoxy, right? Uh, and which kind of pulls against, you know, so it's another kind of protection against um, uh, singular governmental messages or even powerful private actor messages, right? That individuals are free to pursue uh, on their own without interference from government, their own concepts of uh, uh, of the uh, of the heavens of existence of of these very kind of weighty questions that we think of as religious questions. Um, when I think about the speech clause, though, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, the 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 freedom of individuals to speak, like the freedom of individuals to uh, exercise religion, uh, is thought of as a protection against the establishment of government orthodoxy. Right? It's a it's a, it's a protection against, um, uh, you know, government, you know, being a totalitarian, uh, regime and saying, you know, this is the way things are. We've always been at war with Eurasia and you know, we got, I am now free to stand up and say without interference, we have not always been at war with Eurasia or Oceania. I always forget which one. Uh, uh in fact, this is what happened and I'm free to say that, right? This is an important, uh, protection. There isn't, you know, there's kind of a, there's an, there's, um, there would be more poetry in the First Amendment if there were also some kind of protection against uh, government orthodoxy in matters non-religious, right? So there, there's the free exercise clause of speech and the free exercise clause of religion. There's the, uh, um, there's the establishment clause with respect to religion. Is there um, a clause that is the establishment clause with respect to government speech more generally? Like, what what prevents the government from, uh, you know, Orwellian-type message? There's no—are there breaks on that at all? Um, So—and and maybe—and I'm thinking in my head, the answer is probably no, that nothing stops the government from—other, uh, you know, no, nothing that a court can do stops the government uh, from putting out totalitarian-sounding messages, right, that it is up to the political branches to, to cure those problems— <clears throat> but um, I thought I had heard Sonia say that the free press clause was a way. Well, that was going to be my point, right? That the that there's an additional weapon rather than just the general free exercise libertarian ideal of maybe the religion clauses, and the you know as we know those have been somewhat neutered in the religion context, uh, but they are robust in the speech context, right? And maybe the press clause is a way of undermining what otherwise would be the government establishment of the truth. Right. If you think of the religion clauses, it's about you know the truth and matters of religion, and the speech clauses. Whether you're talking like a, a Alexander Michael John Town Forum about uh, uh, self governance, or you're talking more broadly, uh, that that what's up for grabs is 
uh, concepts of the truth in various areas. And we have a free exercise clause, which gives the power to the people to kind of debate the truth and come up with the truth and, and to create through markets some, uh, whether it's pluralistic or, or whether there's some settled view of it, that it is at least out of hands, out of the hands of government. And the press clause may play a role of coming in and undermining what otherwise would be government establishment of the truth. Because now, you know, and this this would support the idea not only that there should be a place for the press, but they should have some rights of access to government information in order to, when the government says that there are definitely WMDs in Iraq, and this is just one example that pops into my head, is there a mechanism by which that can be checked? Uh, is there a mechanism by which we can check the idea that we've always been at war with Oceania or Eurasia, whatever the hell it is? Uh, is there a mechanism for that? And maybe the press clause you know, is, is the plays kind of the role of the missing establishment clause when it comes to secular truth? Well, and this is, you know, it's the term of it's the fourth branch of government and the idea that it's playing this, this very established, established functional role of checking the government, I think is a little bit what you're, yeah, yeah. what you're leading up to. And that's one of my arguments too. You know, there's a lot of, uh, we talked earlier about the technology and okay, everybody can have a blog now and everybody can uh, say whatever and tweet it and do whatever. And, and, and maybe that means, and to some they're saying that's the end of sort of thinking of the press as any kind of separate kind of of uh, speaker but I, I feel pretty strongly and I think this goes along with some of what you're saying that the press as we think about it and as you know we can figure out how to define it is different than just a whole bunch of individuals with mass communication technology that they're that it's different that it's different to have skilled you know experienced uh, members of the press who are functionally trying to gather news and check government and 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 so that that's different than just a whole bunch of people who want to say something about this you know even if they're saying it about the same uh, a topic so i agree with you yes so, i mean obviously i'm I agree <laughs> with you but i you know that this would lead to an argument to say why there shouldn't be you know active uh you know uh, uh rights and and uh, protections like rights of access would be a great one right access to information which again we have a great statute the freedom of information act but it's it's a statute uh it could be taken away it's not a, a first amendment right of access or to government meetings you know the government we have statutes that protect the right of access to meetings but they're you know at the whim of of, of the legislature we don't have first amendment um constitutional rights of access to when our government is meeting and, and doing business and um and because of those statutes now we have you know issues like government actors they don't meet anymore because they decide everything over email and so even though we have these statutes it's not clear that the press can figure out well, follow the decision making process and report on it there's even always have, more work to be done though right right I mean, so, always, but if we uh, had a first amendment right you could go to court and say yeah. they're violating our first amendment right of access you know our press clause right to to follow the decision making process of our it would government. be that bit of law which like allows for this other institution to kind of slice into what otherwise might be the monolithic form of government which might try to establish secular truth in my words, right. I, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, because I do get asked that a lot about why isn't just leaving them alone enough? Why does there need to be sort of these these active rights, which I think the right of access would be um, uh, one of the big ones. I mean, I think having things like getting subpoenaed all the time for your for your notes and, and to have to testify is is or, you know, a news crew goes out to film some event there's a riot in town and the news crew runs out to try to film it and suddenly they get a subpoena saying 
from the police saying, hey, we want to, you know, catch people who set cars on fires during the riot. Give us all your coverage. Give us all your films so we can look for people. And suddenly uh, the press is, you know, just part of the, the government. So they, they have concerns there of just being badgered constantly and not being able to do their work. But this idea of sort of an active um, role, too, of the, of the press clause of actually getting saying this gives you a right of access to um, certain things I think would be important. But that could all be figured out later. These are just to suggest areas where if we decided we did want to give real meaning to the press clause, these are areas we could, you know, piecemeal consider and, and, and think as about. we weigh their relative importance to the principle. That right. That, yeah. Exactly. A complication of the mechanism that you were looking for, for saying, on the one hand, you've got the prohibition on the establishment of an official religion, a state church, um, uh, and the judiciary playing a role in preventing yeah. uh, the establishment of a state church. Uh, that when the when we ask the judiciary, especially in the context we've been talking about, we ask the judiciary to play a significant role in creating um, protections for the press especially as it's preparing its speech, um, the judiciary is part of the state. So there's a sense in which it's especially perhaps troubling that you can say, well, one of the things the judiciary does when it fails to vindicate this press right is it protects itself. Like it, it protects yeah, course, its ability to play a bigger role in, in an orthodox, a state-based orthodoxy that isn't a religious orthodoxy; it's an informational orthodoxy. But it's the best we can do, right? I mean, this is the this is a repeated problem with courts, right? I'm it's just, an institution designed to work against, like the orthodoxy political branches might establish, whether it's in equal protection or free speech. Yeah, I'm just anything, highlighting right? the fact that if you're that that it's imp- I think it's important not to forget that the and, and maybe you say it's a reason why a court should be perhaps, although this is hard to do, but it should be even more disposed. To, to it should be even more solicitous of the claim that uh, the press might make on behalf of a press right, because the court should understand that it is itself part of the state that the press will question, that the right. press will hold up to greater public scrutiny. Right. And rather than frustrate that, the court should be trying to facilitate that. Right. Because we and because we have this idea that ultimately the things that result from that kind of scrutiny are more or more robust and accurate and good and helpful. And and so if you believe all that and say, okay, I know it might make me uncomfortable on some occasion for a person to uncover that, you know, well, this hearing wasn't conducted in exactly the right way because they had more access to court records. But that's good in the end to have that kind of scrutiny so that court uh, proceedings will be uh, performed better. Just an crazy example, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But the judiciary should be, we should remember that and the judiciary should remember that like when you when you make a decision about the press clause you're making a decision about the scrutiny of yourself mm-hmm. and people need i think need to be mindful of that when they're asked to make, it's not like you're scrutinizing somebody else oh, and you're yeah. saying that's that's especially salient with the press clause because they are they are saying something about themselves in a context in which giving additional rights would uh uh would um uh lead to investigations in themselves. I mean, you know, in, in other words, they are knowingly unleashing this, a certain amount of right. un- accountability. Yeah. And you, especially you think of the, you know, the judiciary, <laughs> you, you mentioned this orthodoxy of, of, a, of state truth in uh, the judiciary. Basically the biggest single thing it does is speak. 
Like right, of right. any government institution, it's the one that acts through and by speech. So it seems to me they would notice like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> one of the most scrutinized things that's going to happen is us. Like, yeah, I, our, I would our, say, yeah, no, our output. Yeah, we, we haven't argued enough. This Have you noticed this? <laughs> You so mean I, today? Yeah, yeah. right. I, I mean, I'm going to stay. I'm it's not s- oral agreement. This is oral argument. <laughs> Correct, but I'm going to stay after and and complain to various things at you. Oh, so I've complain said a lot us. of things that have pissed you off already. Not at all, not at all. I'm just going to make stuff up. Oh, okay. But mm-hmm. I want you to feel like we've well, contested. Well, l- let me just say this, and, okay. and, and I think I should have the final word on it, and because I want to talk about student speech, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, but I think that all all um, governmental institutions uh, produce information and work by producing information and exchanging it. So I don't know that I agree that that courts are unusual in that they produce speech. I think what's unusual is their um, is that the information they produce is almost always attended by reasons, um, and and they are uh, reason giving institutions. Yeah. Uh, well, and, I didn't say information. I said speech. And so if you want to try to put a word in my mouth. You're welcome to try, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't say information, right? As as we know, and that might be one of the many reasons why I didn't use that word. Well, speech, word speech is a broad. Yeah, this is all right. We'll just go on from there. Okay. Information this is not an even productive. broader category because you would put behaviors in that category that aren't speech behaviors, that are other behaviors. You've and, never seen a judge rule by grunts and eyebrows raised, and <laughs> that's never not part of your experience. No. Okay. Well, Congress doesn't pass laws that way either. Good point. Hmm. Shall we do one more thing? Sure. Um, I want to talk about student speech. Can we do that for just Please. a few minutes? Yes. Um, this is an interest of yours as well. It right? is. You were a student journalist, weren't you? I was. Well, I was. Where? I, well, you know, I was editor of my high school newspaper. Really? And, uh, and then worked for the Daily Iowan when I was a student at the University of Iowa. Oh, my gosh. So, yes, student journalism. Yay. And, um, <laughs> well, I, you know, there are a whole bunch of things we could talk about here because student speech is as controversial as any other constitutional law topics these days. I mean, one of the big cases was bong hits for Jesus. Right. Which is, I guess that's not allowed, right? You can't do that as a student. You can't. The court said that the school can, can if they wish, censor speech that could be reasonably interpreted as advocating illegal drug use. Like that was bong, the like bong hits for Jesus. Like bong hits for Jesus. If that's yeah. what that's the students unfurled said. a banner that said bong hits for Jesus. And they right. did so specifically because it didn't mean anything, right? That's what the students said. And um, I wrote an amicus brief for the, in that case um, for the Student Press Law Center. So I got to read all the, at the Ninth Circuit and at the court and um, read through all the depositions. So yeah, that's what he said. They, when they asked him why he picked that message. And he basically said he picked a message of something he thought he was allowed to say, but would really bother his principal. And that's, it worked, except for the part about him having the right to say it. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) He misjudged that one a bit. Now, there's this uh, uh, recent case that came out that you posted about on on Facebook and we talked about a little bit. And that's the the school newspaper, which decided unilaterally to stop using the term Redskins, I guess the, the, um, uh, the, which I guess the school shared the same name as the Washington football team. Right. Uh, And... Uh, and, and, and the principal was upset by this as, you know, a lot of schools are going through this now. I have, I have a friend who's a high school teacher who also, I guess their red mascot is the Redskins and they're in the same kind of embroiled in, in the same debate, but this principal forbade them from not using the phrase Redskins. Is that right? Right. So my understanding was the students, uh, 
had a debate amongst themselves about it and I think took a vote of which uh, uh, a majority, a, a pretty, you know, a good sized majority, but certainly not all of the students on the editorial board or on the paper, however it was structured, uh, decided that the term was racist and offensive and they didn't believe they should use it anymore. So they were going to stop using it in their newspaper. Uh, so they published an editorial explaining their thinking. They also published an editorial from one of the dissenters explaining why they felt they should continue to use the mascot's name. And then I guess my understanding is this upset a lot of people, particularly a lot of alums of the school. Um, and at some point, the principal called them in and said, you can't you know, change the name of the mascot of our school and you, you have to keep using the term in your newspaper. But That's presumably my understanding. they could not write stories about the sports team, right? Presumably, yeah. In which yeah. case, they're able to not use the name of the mascot. Maybe it appeared in the masthead or something. I don't know. I don't know if the I don't know where it appeared in the paper normally. But you know, newspapers. You know, newspapers. that aren't student newspapers. They make these kind of decisions all the time. You know, do they call it rape or do they call it sexual assault? Do they do they say gay or do they say you know gay marriage or same sex marriage or you know? And and often their their thinking changes over time and they realize right. now if something you know it's their name, but you know they just I would, this this term is offensive and we're not going to to use it in our paper anymore it seems like the type of decision you know a real newspaper would would make okay now i'm going to render judgment here okay okay the, this is like the john hodgman podcast. Exactly. Oh, if we only john <laughs> if only decision maybe one day I, I i i i could do worse than being a disciple of hodgman i think uh much worse but my judgment is the students are correct the principal is wrong um, and that um, regardless of their rights, the student should engage in civil disobedience. Yeah, it would be interesting. I mean, you said that on Facebook. <laughs> yes, that, that, that I, I want to share start... my, I share my yeah. proposal. It was and, a good proposal. I liked it. it. Uh, well, see, now you... Hold get... on, what's your proposal well, again? See, now, all right, so maybe Joe will disagree with me. Okay, I'm probably hoping, not, but I'm go hoping. ahead. Oh, okay. My proposal is that they should comply, but they should append in front of every name, in front of every person that they, they uh, uh, write about in the paper, the color of their skin. Mm. So the the first article could be about this very thing. So, you know, white skin principal blah 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 has instructed us not to, you know, drop the term redskins. Uh we attempted to reach, you know, olive skin superintendent but whatever and they're <laughs> unavailable for comment. Right. And, and and in the masthead like they should have their uh <laughs> the, the color of their skin next to all of their um uh names. Yeah. I think they should never mention a name without mentioning the, the color of the skin and use and for that description you know, X skinned, where X is, uh, you know, some color maybe from the Crayola 64 box. You had that, didn't you? Did you ever have the, you know what I'm talking about? The big Crayola box? The (laughs) 64. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Here's why, here's why that is um, an emotionally satisfying and deeply stupid idea. (laughs) No, this is a brilliant idea, I think. It is a brilliantly emotionally satisfying and profoundly stupid idea. Okay. All Um, right, go. This is great. This is what we've been waiting for the whole hour. Well, you know, it's, you're, you're, you're saying that the way they should respond to somebody else's bad tempered decision is to engage in more bad tempered behavior. I, I don't think that's why do a, you think it's bad tempered behavior? Um, because it's, uh, it's well, maybe bad tempered isn't the right phrase, but it's, it's sort of, um, gross behavior to talk that that's why the term Redskins is itself offensive is because it's indulging in this sort of racial essentialism. And you're saying, oh, yeah, you should go ahead and do that with not only the team, but every single person you mention in the newspaper. No, I think that's ridiculous. I mean, I think it's a nice verbal trope, but I'm done with it just no, it, a, a few seconds no, no, before no. you're actually done describing <laughs> no, it. Is, it, is a, it is a satirical, it is it's satire, right? 
which brings home more than more than just talking abstractly about whether the particular term redskin is offensive, um, which, you know, it's crazy that anybody can think that it's not, I think. But it, uh, whatever. Maybe you've got some argument that you think that it's not. There's some, Someone does. Not you, Joe. Yeah, I think I you think it's offensive. What I'm saying <laughs> is, though, that uh, to bring the truth of that home, putting someone, putting race, and not even in polite terms, but in terms of skin color, in front of every name, right, that, um, that emotionally lands, right, in a way that talking about other people doesn't. Yeah. Right? Because you, you, you push... You push past whatever problems people have with empathy and empathizing with Native Americans who they might not know any of, right? And you put it in front, and they say, "Well, that's ridiculous. What does the color of the skin have to do with?" It? And they see all of it out. I think. Okay. That, I think well, let me let me meet you more than halfway, which is to acknowledge excellent. That, which is to acknowledge that yeah, satire is a very powerful and important way to uh, advance understanding and advance the argument. And I think in the article describing what the principal or superintendent has done and what they're going to do by way of response to it. I think in that article and in that one alone, it would make sense to do what you've stated, but to do it more generally in the newspaper, more broadly on in articles about all kinds of things and to do it day after day after day. I think that is not satire. I would do it until the policy changed. Okay. And it is, it is, it's, it's a kind of resistance, right? It's a kind of, this newspaper is going to be ridiculous and absurd until you relent. Yes, and I think that's um, not a good idea. Okay, and uh, so we have our <laughs> so we have your we have our sides now. Sonia, would you like to render judgment on this? <laughs> well, you and already rendered judgment. You rendered judgment. I rendered judgment on no. That was, oh, my judgment was my, I judge the actual case. I made a proposal for oh, okay. a remedy, and now we'll have to have uh, Sonia's view on this. But I'd also like to know um, if the students did this, or if they simply refused to comply and left out Redskins, and then they were, you know suspended or whatever else that it, like, what what are the constitutional implications here because they're students well constitutionally uh because they're students um the the principal can can control them because we have a supreme court opinion uh called the hazelwood decision where the court gave schools uh you know extremely broad abilities to regulate speech in student newspapers as part of this they considered it a non-public forum my understanding too this was part of a class and so that they so the school constitutionally would win so it is about arguing it in the sort of more court of 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 public opinion um and the latest i heard about what they i'm I'm not so sure. The students brought a claim against the school and the principal um, asking for an injunction against his order. Oh, they would lose. They would lose, yeah. Okay. Unless they lived in a state that had state protection, which some do. Even um, in the context of this case. So you, you think it's perfectly clear cut that if the principal ordered them to use the phrase redskins, use the phrase redskins, and they refused because they thought it was racist. That the that they would find that there was kind of a pe- do they have to find a pedagogical they have purpose? to find a pedagogical reason so I suppose you could argue that they would have to make the argument that they that there was no pedagogical reason to to further them so perhaps they could but for generally the students lose in these does cases. tribalism count is, uh, <laughs> pedagogical? so I am trying as you two argued I was trying to figure out what would I you know, like if I were their journalism advisor or whatever how would I advise them you know to handle uh, the situation and so I you know Joe I think Joe did have a point that that'd be emotionally satisfying but perhaps not uh, the best solution to you know do, well I liked your solution but that um, you know that <laughs> that part of what you're trying to prove is that 
we're real journalists, even though we're 16 years old or we're 17 years old. Right. And so acting that way could seem acting childish. And so that's always the concern of, of um, uh, student journalists. I also was wondering, too, if it really got – it got to – your solution got to one of the core problems with a term like redskins, but it's not simply just a reference to your skin color, is my understanding. It's also sort of uh, cartoonizing, yes. you know, you're, right, that right, you right. become this little, you know f- – you know stereotypical cartoon it's not you know that the redskins is the little whatever i think of the little sort of a fighting or or whatever it's 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 a it's a you know it's a stereotype and it's being used as this mascot in a way that's not three-dimensional and not real and my thought though is that if you if if you put that in front of every name and uh and and people begin to ask you know well it's ridiculous here but it's okay there the minute you confront them with that they start to think about exactly the why do I feel like it's okay right. for a school, but not an okay adjective to throw around generally. Like, so what's the it? real form of satire that you should be advocating is for the students to use racial slurs to describe every person in a story. No, see, you know, no, 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 no. Crazy my, my honky was, principle. No, 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 no. The claim um, was the claim is this wah, is wah, not wah. offensive, right? The claim is that this is not offensive. That this is a I don't even know what it is, but the, the and, and so that's okay, the principal's claim. I don't, I don't know what his claim is. Uh, I don't even know if it's a he. Uh, but if you're if you're if you're saying that the okay, I, it just seems to me that you're uh, to capture the uh, to more fully capture the problem with the term. Um, y- you might want to say that the satire would need to go much further than the satire you advocated. That was my point. Yeah, but I wouldn't do that because I I, I think it would be um, so. If I were their advisor, um, you know, God help them. I know. <laughs> God help them. I'm so glad I'm not their advisor because uh, that would be really bad for them. If well, I were. Well, well, let me put it this way. So, it, uh, okay. So I, I think that it's important um, uh, to show the absurdity of skin color adjectives in general, or it's, you know, would, would this be a nominative adjective? I don't know. I don't remember my gram- my grammar, but. Uh, it, it, this, you, referring to people by skin color is a ridiculous thing, and you can show that um, by doing it a whole bunch. Um, and and so, I, but I wonder if if you were their advisor and the students came to you with this proposal, either for a one-off issue, uh, or um, uh, and and you know, there's some of them who thought they should do this, and others who thought they should simply refuse to comply. Uh, what what would you what would you say? Or, or what do you think a reasonable person? I mean, because there's really two. Say? There's really two issues here. One is sort of the the issue of of debating the racism of the term and how. And then the other is just telling a student newspaper what they can or can't publish, e- even if it's something that we felt like they just decided whatever we don't like this. We're we're not going to do something one way, even if it's not something as as charged. You know, that the idea that they're being uh, uh, controlled in that way. So, I mean, I do feel like the goal would be, like I said, to try to respond in the most professional way and to actually prove that you're. Um, you're acting, you know, like adult journalists or also just gives, you know, fodder to the idea that you're just kids being stupid and you're going to um, not look uh, professional. I kind of like Joe's idea, actually, about then we won't cover sports anymore, that that could be one uh, possible response. I was, I was starting to think in my head, like adding an asterisk next to it every time you did it with <laughs> that says, you know, we are saying this under duress or whatever. This is not um, um, I do know that uh, a, a group, some groups of reporters have took out an ad in their student newspaper in support of them. Yeah. Uh, but I think a, a group of alumni did the opposite. Um, so they're having sort of a war in the, in the ad pages about 
what is right. But I, you know, I was thinking too when I when I was in high school, my high school mascot we were the Spartans, but it was the standard practice to refer to all girls' athletic teams as the Lady Spartans, uh, which is, was a phrase and a term I always hated and still do. I wish I had. I wish we had fought that, but we didn't. I don't that's, think that's they ridiculous. Used, there were no Lady Spartans. There were no they lady were Spartans. Athenians, right? The, the yeah, Athenians I mean, were the ladies. The though. ladies Athenians, yeah. But and and no. I. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've definitely seen the term "lady bulldogs" thrown around no, here right. too, and and yeah. and, oh, and it's just it's a very it's a very demeaning. I think it's the idea that there's the true athletes and then there's the little yeah, girl yeah. athletes, and and it's it's a terrible term. So you can imagine the same kind of thing there too if we wanted to try to back away from just the racism aspect. But you know, but just and again, like I said earlier, like our how we view terms change, you know, changes over time, and the idea that the newspapers are going to have um, some. Some role. So I'm not answering your question. I guess I'd answer your well, question no, a little I mean, bit. I had some I, ideas. I, think I mean, we I all think decided that yeah. my idea was the best idea for dealing with this problem. So I think that's done. Yeah. I think that we can put that one to bed. Oh, um, uh, no, but you're raising, and you know, we don't have time to go into it, which means we'll just have to have you back. Uh, <laughs> Yay. Um, that there is a role, even, and the, maybe the student newspaper is a pretty good place to look at this because we have even more competing uh, values at stake. Uh, um, that it, is you know it's an agent of change and to the extent that people you want people to think about say women's athletics differently as you know these are it's just athletics right uh uh and um and that may lead even to more changes than we can even imagine right now that one of the places that this germinates is in the student newspaper which is the center for discourse among students about this thing even if there is you know even if there's twitter and snapchat and and facebook and there are many like individual free exercise type conversations going on. The newspaper gathers a lot of that. It, it kind of puts ideas out there and it's able to get access to people for their views in a way that creates fuel for these conversations. And it's, it plays a very important role. And then, you know, hopefully people would write letters to the editor and they would publish them and they would about, you know, both sides and yeah. we would have this whole debate in that way. Yeah. You know, this principle might be um, really terrific and fantastic at many aspects of what has got to be yeah, absolutely. A, an extremely challenging job. Yeah. But but the sense in which this particular principal appears to have failed these students very badly, I think, in this particular dispute, in the context of this dispute, is the way that you can very easily envision both uh, helping the students see what's really important in what they've accomplished as an act of self-governance in this student journalism institution but also help them take it even another step further in coping with the response, because that's another part, I think, of, of a responsible and adult sense of their journalist, uh, journalistic institution. You say, you know what, we've got these upset alumni. So I think it would be really important for all of you to make sure that you interview them about why they feel as they do about what you did, and maybe also find some alumni who support what you did and interview them as well. And I think it would be interesting for you guys to try to write a feature on this dispute as it's played out in professional sports teams like the Washington, D.C. football team. And so you could just see this getting used. This educator could actually use it to educate Joe and, and for journalism is, advisor. Yeah, I actually agree. <laughs> that was actually a very good response. That was a very is, good yeah. response. I, I yeah. just feel like that's this this otherwise who might be a wonderful principle but again in the, this is sort of like oh my gosh this is not educating well that's the concern with the hazelwood decision which was in 1988 i believe and and is that sure of course we understand having a bunch of teenagers with their own newspaper that they might 
not do things right. They might not give both sides of the story or they might whatever, make rash decisions. There's going to be so having and there's pedagogical reasons and things that you can learn from this. So having the teachers and the administrators play a role, you could you can imagine situations where that makes a lot of uh, sense. The concern is what you see a lot of. And if you go to the Student Press Law Center webpage, they just have story after story of these things is you have what appears to be administrators being very concerned about getting angry calls from parents or getting angry calls from alumni or just, you know, getting headaches that they don't want to deal with. And the easiest way to do that is to just not let the students tread anywhere that could be even the tiniest bit controversial in any way. And that's, I think, what's what's scary and dangerous about the lessons that they are teaching them about what it means to be a journalist in this country and, 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 and you know, even the non-journalists, the, the student speakers, when, they're, when students are, don't, you know, are, are, are allowed to be censored, that, that gives them a, a warped sense of what our speech freedoms are and what yeah. is acceptable well, and not acceptable. it yields acceptable. to the idea that there is a, a secular orthodoxy, which is established by public norms and uh, by the powerful and um and the idea of journalism is at war with that idea exactly so really what they should do is start a start a journalistic enterprise that's independent of the school i mean really not 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 even the satirical version of the issue all of them should simply leave that class the very next moment they can and and go do something outside school that's journalistic and and has integrity in another episode of oral argument we will discuss (laughs) um the ability to regulate people outside of their jobs or outside of their school and whether that can, uh, whether that can happen. But I think we're done. Cool. I I think, I I think we should not try to do any more today. Thanks, Sonia. Uh, Thanks guys. Sonia is fantastic. And, uh, uh, so we're going to have the links to Sonia's, uh, um, uh, to her, uh, faculty page and her, uh, SSRN page and, uh, who knows? I'm going to try to link up everything we know about Sonia. This will be there'll be just a dossier. <laughs> That'll be scary. You mentioned yeah. the Brandsburg yeah. case. We could link to the Brandsburg case. We we yeah. might we might link to Some that. Pictures from New Year's Eve might be. That's right. That's right. <laughs> everything I know about Sonia will be in the show notes for this for this episode of the uh, show notes. Um, no, but if people want to get in touch with you, Sonia, how, what, what's the best way for them? Uh, to, can they follow you on the Twitters? They can. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it? Sonia R. Sonia with a J. R. West is my handle. Mm-hmm. Or email srwest at uga.edu. Okay. And if they want to come to your home, what is your, <laughs> what, what is your, uh, <laughs> when this is something Ridgewood Place, 180. <laughs> oh, oh, so, whoa, whoa. This is, yes. She, and if you want to reach the podcast, <laughs> our email address is oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And I'll I, say that once again, oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Okay. So if you are, I don't know, the principal of a high school embroiled in a controversy, <laughs> and you we are, love reader and mail. you're yeah. pissed off about what we've discussed today, yeah. send it in. We love send reader mail. Um, uh, we will read hate mail and, and, you know, semi-positive email alike. Right? Yeah. Suggestions right. for future guests or future topics. We would like to hear from anyone about anything. Okay. And... What else do we, oh, what's your Twitter, Joe? Is that where you want people to follow you? What? How do, how do you want people to know about you? I don't. Okay. So Joe <laughs> is not available. I'm at Chris Dorr on Twitter. And that's all on our page. It's all on our webpage. People can find out about this. All right. Are we done? I think we are. Yay. All right. See bye. you next week. Bye.